0: This I recall to mind, and therefore have hope. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he will give thee the desires of thine heart. Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. In God whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust, I will not fear what man can do to me. Seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence, for by these He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust, For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we open God's word this evening, let's make sure that we are prepared for our study. Utilize First John 1, 9 if necessary in the privacy of your priesthood. We begin with a few moments of silent prayer in case that is necessary, and then we'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the privilege, the opportunity we have to gather together to study your word. It is your complete revelation to us, absolutely sufficient in everything it addresses to give us clarity and perspicacity for every issue in life. Father, it is the mirror that is held up in front of us to, for us to accurately and honestly see ourselves for who we are as fallen creatures in absolute dependence upon your grace and your provision. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that you would help us to understand the things that we look at, and they might challenge our thinking, and that we might have the honesty and the courage to evaluate ourselves in the light of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before we get started in our study on James, I was asked a question as I came in. Now, y'all remember a couple of weeks ago... When we were teaching in John on Sunday morning, I was talking about how Christians are like sheep. That's the analogy, and that's not a very complimentary analogy. I was telling the story about how a friend of mine was uh, one time herding sheep and was trying to get them into the, into the sheepfold, and all of a sudden this, oh, you just sort of planted her legs and screamed. There was nothing there. She just thought she saw something. Screamed and... Bleated out loud. Of course, it spooked the whole flock, and everybody ran. And they all ran off. It took him half the night to pull them back together, and he never did get them in the, in the fold that night. Well, I don't mean this to be an uncomplimentary, sort of analogy, but we have some old you who's bleated, <laughs> and I don't know who it is. So, you know, that's not meant. Don't take that personally if it's somebody who's here tonight, and I can understand why. Uh, I'm going to put Tom on the hot seat. Tom asked me a couple of weeks ago for some good books on, on dinosaurs related to kids. And so I gave him some suggestions. And uh, one somebody, one of the adults, read one of the books and raised some questions because of what's been taught in the past. So I want to make sure I clarify this so we don't have any bleeding ewes running around panicking and spooking the flock. One of the most important issues that we can address is the whole issue of creation. The scripture is very, very clear that God is the creator of everything. And in fact, the issues surrounding the literal interpretation of Genesis 1 through 11 are foundational. If they are not to be understood literally, then the rest of the Bible might as well be thrown out. Now, having said that, we must realize that the uh, literal interpretation of Genesis 1 especially has come under attack for the la- at least the last 200 years, specifically from the direction of modern science. And so uh, the problem that we have is when did dinosaurs exist? Now, That's an interesting question. I was taught one thing. I was taught the same thing most of you all were taught, and we're going to have to correct that a little bit because we have to understand some history. This is one of the things that has, I think, shaken up some people because uh, I'm very interested in this. I've been reading on this subject since I was 14 years old. When I was 14 years old, I was given a book or I bought a book called The Genesis Flood by Henry Morris and John Whitcomb, which is one of the five most significant books published in this century. And if you are a believer at all interested in the whole issue of Noah's Flood, creation, then you need to read that particular book. Because up until the publication of that book, which was in about 1961 or 1962, the entire spectrum of evangelicalism was drifting away from a literal interpretation of Genesis 1 to 11. We just didn't see how it was possible on a scientific basis to hold to a literal interpretation of those first 11 chapters. Now what it, what happened basically is you, you had, I'm trying to organize my thoughts here, let's look at this thing historically. Historically you can go back into the early Middle Ages and there was a view that goes back to various rabbis that saw a gap between Genesis 1.1 1, 1 and Genesis 1.2 and they saw that And that was based not only on the grammar of Genesis 1-2, but it was also based upon a theological necessity of trying to locate the fall of Satan, the fall of Lucifer. There didn't seem to be room to put Lucifer, the fall of Lucifer, after the creation, the six days of creation in Genesis 1 and the fall of Adam, which seems to be... Some people want to make it a long time. I frankly don't think they were in the garden that long. A couple of weeks, a couple of years. I don't think it was decades or centuries. And um, so, so they put, put the fall in here. Uh, they put the fall of Lucifer, the creation of the angels, and the fall of Lucifer into this position. Now, not only did, did that have support among rabbinical interpreters, but also very famous um, theologians like John Milton, who wrote Paradise Lost, also took that position. Now, something happened. We've studied here on Wednesday night in the last couple of months about human viewpoint thinking and about how in every generation there's always pressure from the world to think a certain way. Every generation has its own arena of of uh, cosmic thinking to deal with. And from the, we saw in our study that from the 18th century, or really the early 17th century, through the 18th century, you had the rise of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment put a lot of emphasis on human reason as being totally capable of interpreting and understanding all the data and explaining all the data in the universe. As a result of that emphasis on human reason, there were some good results and bad results. One of the good results that it laid the groundwork for modern science. And um, just as today we live in an environment when outside, outside the church there is pressure oozing in and seeping in through all the cracks and corners to yield to emotionalism and mysticism and experiential thinking in all your categories, that you had the same thing during the 19th century, except the pressure came from science and reason. And in those early years, as science had divorced itself from a scriptural understanding of either the Noahic flood, uh, you, read, read, you read scientists in the 1700s and 1600s, and they all believed in a literal, universal, universal, Cataclysmic flood. They took Genesis 6 literally. They took Genesis 1 literally. But as science divorced itself from uh, the, the scriptures and a belief in the scriptures, and they began to operate on an autonomous concepts and through the influence of historical geology, and all of this is before Darwin. I want you to understand that. This is all before Darwin. There was all this pressure. And they began to say that the Earth wasn't 10,000 years old, and they began to move. 50,000. 100,000. Maybe 200,000. Now these aren't the big numbers we have today, where it's 200 million or 300 million or a billion years. Uh, science, evolutionary science has had to keep expanding the numbers because they keep hoping they're given enough time. If there, if something's operating on raw chance, somehow order will come out of disorder, and if you, and the magic thing is just give it enough time. But in the early 1800s, science ruled supreme, and everybody was optimistic. Science will answer all of our questions. These guys cannot make mistakes. A history professor of mine at Dallas Seminary, I did my T, uh, PhD work under him, uh, named Dr. Hanna wrote an article. He went back, and he surveyed the articles, written in Bibliotheca Sacra which is now owned by Dallas Seminary was purchased by them in 1933 or 34 and is now a very conservative evangelical theological journal But back, it started its publication back in the 1840s and it wasn't so conservative back then and he went back and he read all these articles and uh, written by pastors and theologians and how enamored they were with science, if science said that the earth was 50,000 years old or 100,000 years old, they just automatically bought into it. So you had this pressure out here, and everybody was buying into it, so they were trying to compromise and assimilate and somehow fit the Bible and modern science together. And so you had various theories that were developed in order to make the big numbers that science was discovering fit with Genesis. And one of the theories that came out, it wasn't called, this, this term really developed in the 1830s. That's why I don't like to use it. I don't like to say I believe in the gap theory. I believe there's a huge time difference between Genesis 1 and 1 and Genesis 1-2. But I don't like using the term gap theory because that term carries with it a whole load of baggage that I don't want to accept. And a Scottish theologian, Scots Presbyterian theologian by the name of Thomas Chalmers said, well I have a solution. This was in about 1836 or 1837. And he said, I have a solution. We'll just stick all these historical ages and, and, um, Stone Age man and the dinosaurs and all of this into this gap. And that'll solve the problem see his basic assumption is somehow science is right, and the Bible's wrong now, and I don't have time to go into all all of the details, but modern Darwinian evolution is merely a scientific facade and a scientific costume for the same Kinds of things that were stated in ancient mythological accounts of origins. If you go back and see, this has been a special interest of mine. It's one of the reasons that I majored in Hebrew and in Old Testament studies when I went to seminary, is specifically to try to unravel the complex issues related to Genesis 1 1 to 1 3. And uh, Darwinism, you you get back into the Babylonians and you see their basic uh, creation story is called Enuma Elish. And it starts off with chaos. And then the gods create and you have uh, Tiamat, who's one of the gods, is killed by another god. And her body's cut up and part of the body becomes earth. So the gods are material. So ultimate reality in, in the, these mythologies, is material. It's not immaterial. The gods are material, and chaos and matter is eternal. And because you have um, chaos is nothing more than raw chance. You never know from one day to the next. You read ancient mythologies from the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Sumerians, the Egyptians. It's all basically the same thing. And it's it's nothing more than a mythological presentation of time plus chance equals complexity, and there's no personal God who is creating everything. You know, one of the most profound things you can think about is what happened. What was there before Genesis one one? Think about it. In Genesis one one, God creates the heavens and the earth, and the phrase there is uh, the heavens and the earth. Uh, God created Haaretz Vahashamayin. And there's no word, we have the English word universe. That encapsulates everything. But in Hebrew, there's no way to say that. You have to say the heavens and the earth. And all that is saying is that God create created at that point the space-time universe. That's the stage in which everything's operating. And the only thing that we can say for sure is on the stage at the end of Genesis 1:1 is the earth. Now, let me give you a little something to think about. I explained this to Tom last week. He showed me this pamphlet to get my uh, opinion of it. And I've been doing some thoughts over the years about the, the mirror reflection between the beginning and the end of the Bible. At the end of time, God is going to create a new heavens and earth. Totally new. Whatever happens in this heavens and earth is not going to survive into that heavens and earth. They're not going to be digging up fossils of Boston or New York or Washington, D.C. in the new heavens and on the new earth. Because in the renovation that produces the new earth, all evidence of whatever was before is radically destroyed and erased, period. I'm I'm going to work backwards in this diagram. So you have the new heavens and the new earth. Right before that, you have the great white throne judgment. And then in between, you have all of human history. And the most significant cataclysm in all of human history occurred right here when you had the universal deluge of Noah's flood. And everything on the planet was wiped out. Now, that caused a major shift. Over here you have paradise minus one, and here you have paradise minus two. Now, what do I mean by that? When God created what he did in those six days of Genesis 1, was to create an absolutely perfect environment, which is paradise, P. But when Adam and Eve sinned, when Adam sinned, when he ate of the fruit of the tree, the animal kingdom, botany, zoology, everything was cursed as a result of that. But it's still, you still had the same kind of environment that preceded the fall. When God creates, begins to recreate the earth in Genesis 1-2, he separates the waters above from the waters below. So there seems to be a water vapor canopy around the earth. would look something like this. Here's the earth, and then there's the atmosphere, the oxygen here, and then out here in space there's a either a clear or an ice crystal. Different creationists have worked with different models trying to figure out what impact this would have on life on earth. But there's a water vapor canopy of some sort out there beyond the... Um, the gaseous atmosphere that would have created a perfect environment on the earth. It would have had a, you wouldn't have had any winds because you have a state, winds is a product of temperature differential. Without temperature differential, you don't have winds. Without wind, you don't have the cycle of evaporation, uh, condensation, and precipitation necessary for rain. That's why. When God said it was going to rain before Noah's blood, nobody knew what God was talking about. He just said, I'm going to destroy all life and it's going to rain, and that word was meaningless to them. And that's why the rainbow is the sign, is because you never had a rainbow in the paradise environment. But you still had that water vapor canopy after the fall... And man lived to be 900 plus years. You didn't have the development of a lot of diseases and bacteria and viruses in that environment. So this is paradise minus one. It's one stage removed from a perfect environment. It's affected by, but when the flood comes, the last vestiges, the Garden of Eden was still on the earth between Adam and Noah. It was guarded by the uh, cherub with the flaming sword, and you could take your kids down and say, there is the perfect Garden of Eden where great-grandfather Adam sinned. God is still there. His temple's in there, and His abode on the earth is there. You could take everybody there. God was still on the earth. In fact, when you come to Genesis 1-6, and you have a very famous passage in Genesis, I think it's Genesis 6-3, and it says that God... Uh, God says, my spirit will no longer strive with man. The word that's translated into English, strive, is a hapax legomena in the Hebrew. I can't remember offhand what that word is, but it's only used one time. If you study cognate languages, and the interesting thing is, many scholars think that Hebrew is pretty close to the original language of Adam in the garden because your Semitic languages, Hebrew, Ugaritic, Akkadian, And a couple of others do not show much variation. They're very close. Arabic, they're very, very close in their relationship. And so by studying cognate languages, you can discover the meanings of some of these Hebrew words that are only used one time in our Bible. And in all the cognate languages of Ugaritic and Akkadian, I remember having to do a word study exercise on this when I was uh, in about my fourth year of Hebrew at Dallas Seminary. Uh, all of the other cognate languages, the word means to abide. It doesn't mean to strive. It means to dwell. And so I think that what God is saying there is that my spirit will no longer dwell. In other words, there was the presence of God the Father, the pre-incarnate Christ, and the Holy Spirit in the Garden of Eden, the temple of God on the earth, just as there will be, remember, in the Millennium Kingdom, there will be a temple on the earth and there will and also in the new new earth and there will be a stream of living water coming out from that temple you had the same thing in paradise you had one river coming out of the center of eden and then it divides into four that shows you right away that the environment on the earth prior to the uh, fall prior to the flood was different it had different physical laws. Some, some, many were the same. Some were different. It had different physical laws, different biological laws, different zoological laws. Things shifted with the flood. So the basic principle of evolution is uniformitarianism. And the assumption underlying all modern science is the principle that the processes... What you're going on today in the physical, biological world, and out in the universe, are the exact same processes that have been going on for millions and millions and millions of years. And yet, what the Bible says is, no, these have changed. They changed here at the flood. Some of them changed, and they and they were not uh, instigated or initiated, installed until the last. Of the creation week, whatever the processes were that God used between day one and day six, they're not in effect anymore. It is at that time that God inaugurated all of the laws of physics and biology and zoology and everything else that was during that time of day one through day six. Now let's look at a passage in the New Testament to understand the theological implications of what I'm getting ready to say. We know from Romans chapter 5 that in Adam all die. Uh, Romans chapter 5 states it this way. You're turning to 1 Corinthians 15. Romans chapter 5 says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. We did an extensive study of the Genesis 2 passage several weeks ago when God warned Adam that in the day that he ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would certainly die. That we saw was spiritual death, but spiritual death is the umbrella death. Without spiritual death, there is no other kind of death in the Scriptures. Because a spiritual death is the penalty, let's make a distinction here, is the penalty for sin, Adam died instantly. He was separated from God. That's the definition of spiritual gift. As a consequence of that, you have every other kind of death in, listed in the Bible. Physical death, sexual death, carnal death, temporal death, the second death. Now, some people would say, and I've gotten in a lot of discussions with people over this over the years, is that Romans 5 is just talking about spiritual death. So you can have things die physically before Adam. You can't, because physical death is the result of spiritual death, and I'll prove it with a clear passage in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. Let's back up a little bit and catch the context. The context of 1 Corinthians 15 is the importance, the central importance of the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. And without that, Paul says there is no Christianity. So what's he talking about? Look at verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead... What kind of dead are we talking about here? Spiritually dead or physically dead? Physically dead. We're talking about his physically dead body in the grave. He has Now, Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead. How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? It's physical death again. But if there is no resurrection of the physically dead, not even Christ has been raised... And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith also is in vain. The point is, and I'm not going to go through every, voice, every verse here and belabor the point, we're talking about physical death in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, go to verse 20. But now Christ has been raised from the physically dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Now, if you try to make that first phrase mean spiritual death, you've destroyed the entire meaning of this whole chapter. He is talking about physical death as a consequence of spiritual death, being the physical concrete evidence. That is one reason the resurrection was necessary, was to validate Everything that Christ did on the cross. For since by a man came death, by a man also came resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Now, question, is this just referring to human beings or is this referring to the entire realm of nature? Well, Romans chapter 8 talks about how the entire creation is groaning under the curse of sin. So that tells us that Adam's sin didn't just affect the human race, it, entire, it affected the entire realm of nature. We also know from the curse in Genesis chapter 3 that it affected at least the, the animal, the serpent, who no longer walked around, but now he was going to move around on his scuts. And we also know from uh, what, Adam, what God says to Adam about, now your labor will be from the sweat of your brow, that it affected all of nature, so nature was no longer in cooperation with man, but it would be an antagonistic relationship to man. And if you don't believe that, go home and pull the weeds out of your garden. That's a direct result of Adam's fall. So we have a problem here. And that problem is that if we're going to solve the problem of the conflict between creation and evolution... By saying that in Genesis 1-1, you had a creation of an entire earth and bot- botanical system and animal system and a pre-Adamic race and that they were all killed in that, in this gap and that's where fossils come from. Then what do you have here but death? And death is the means of evolution. Survival of the fittest means that the non-fit die. So death is the mechanism of evolution and in evolutionary thought death is normal. Death is normal and evil is normal in all evolutionary thought. But in the Bible death is a penalty, death is abnormal. When I do funerals I always talk about uh, John 11 when uh, Lazarus died and Jesus comes to the grave and, and Jesus weeps. Why did Jesus weep? He's not grieving over the death of Lazarus. In his deity he's omniscient. In his omniscient, he knows that in five minutes he's going to say, Lazarus, come out, Lazarus is going to go walk home, and they're going to go eat Sunday chicken together. They know, he knows that, but why is he weeping? Because he's looking at the grief. He says he looks on the multitude and he weeps for the crowd. Why? Because he sees the pain and misery that their grief has brought them over the loss of this man. Grief is a sign to us that this physical loss that we're going through is abnormal. It is a reminder, the pain of loss of a loved one in physical death is a reminder that the entire human race suffers under spiritual death as a result of sin. And it tells us that death is not normal, it's abnormal. So if you have any death whatsoever of any kind prior to Genesis 3 when Adam sins then death is not the consequence of Adam's sin. And if death is not the consequence of Adam's sin, then Jesus Christ did not need to go to the cross to pay the penalty for sin, because death isn't the penalty for sin. And Jesus Christ did not need to die physically. Now, His spiritual death was the issue, but He also had to die physically and go into the grave and be resurrected. And if physical death and physical death throughout the creation is not the result of Adam's fall, then Jesus didn't need to die physically and he didn't need to be resurrected. So, in a very subtle way, I want you to see that the entire scheme of evolution and all of the attempts that evangelicals have made over the years to compromise, whether it's threshold evolution or progressive evolution or theistic evolution or the day-age theory, all of these have... Death happening before Genesis three, and if one thing dies before Genesis three, Jesus doesn't need to go to the cross, and that's the whole issue. It is a satanic attack. It is a false doctrinal attack on the necessity of a substitutionary atonement, a physical death, a spiritual substitutionary atonement, physical death of Christ, and resurrection. That's why this is important. Now. The, the issue that came up in this was that this pamphlet that they passed out was to explain the dinosaurs. Now, what's happened among evangelicals is you really have three views on Genesis 1 that are within the realm of what I would call orthodoxy. View number one is a similar view to, to one, I believe, that was taught by Uh, And a lot of the men who teach this are men who have... Like my professor at Dallas Seminary was Alan Ross. Alan Ross not only had four years of Hebrew in his THM program at Dallas, he had another three or four years of Hebrew in his THD program at Dallas Seminary. And then he went to a little school across the pond at Cambridge and got a second PhD in Hebrew. So he knows his Hebrew. And his mentor... Was Bruce Waltke. Now, Bruce Waltke is a great grammarian, but he's fluctuated in every theological system around the, around the world. Waltke's been amillennial, premillennial, dispensational, covenant, who knows what he is today. But when Waltke walked off the stage at Harvard up here with his second PhD in Hebrew, they offered him a full professorship at Harvard. That doesn't happen to every Tom, Dick, or Harry that walks across the stage at Harvard. Those men took the view that Genesis one is merely a su- summary statement. It's like a topical sentence. It doesn't really describe original creation. It's like having a photo album. And uh, you know how it is. You, you get married and you have a, all your pictures go in this photo album. And on the front says the, the wedding of Mary and Bill Smith. That's the title. That would be like Genesis one. Then when you open it up, you see a picture of them getting ready for the wedding. Now, you'd assume that they dated and they were introduced and all that, but that's not in evidence. Okay? All you're doing is you're opening the book, everything's already started, and you're just looking at a result. Well, that was how Ross and Waltke took the view. They definitely saw a distinction between Genesis 1-1 and God's creation, his involvement begins in 1-2, and everything is Tohu Abohu turned to Genesis 1-2. In the beginning, Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, Bereshit bara Elohim hashemayim shamayim and the earth was tohu Vibohu Now, we I don't want to get distracted and go through all the usage where tohu Vibohu tends to relate to judgment. Uh, darkness. Darkness is also a term. Darkness, if we go back to our little chart that I was developing, comparing the beginning of time and the end of time, you have in the new heavens and earth, you have no darkness. Everything is illuminated by a light from the Shekinah glory of God, and His glory illuminates the entire universe. And I think that is inherent to God. And so prior to Genesis 1 through 6 here, in the creation of the earth in the first day, you have darkness. Well, darkness is not inherent to God. You had to have had, I think, in parallelism a time of 100% light what interfered with that that was Satan's fall Satan falls and God judges the universe which at that time was just as the new heavens and earth down here are going to be radically radically different from what we now have what existed at that time in terms of the universe was we wouldn't even know it it would look like something out of science fiction physical laws, biological laws Prior to Genesis 1-2 were radically different. We can't even guess what it would have been like any more than we can guess what it's going to be like after Revelation 21. It's impossible. No frame of reference. I mean, you're going to have a resurrection body that'll move at the speed of light. There will be no flesh and blood, just flesh and bone. You can go anywhere, do anything, dematerialize, rematerialize, pass through walls, eat, not eat, eat all the chocolate you want, eat no chocolate at all. I mean, it's just going to, and it won't make you fat, so obviously the biological laws are going to be different. So everything was different here, but because God is light, John, First John 1, 1 and 2, God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all, we can draw a theological deduction that there was nothing but light at one point when God created the heavens and the earth. But there's darkness. Darkness all through Scripture indicates judgment. It indicates the presence of sin. All through judgment. Now, the answer to that that I've heard is that, well, this is just the beginning. Well, that that, that that, that renders then everything else in Scripture somewhat difficult to deal with hermeneutically, and it really doesn't work. Darkness... You have darkness, and it's not just darkness. You have this, these, these three terms. You have tohu, bohu, formless and void. That's used of judgment in Jeremiah and Isaiah. Darkness is over the surface of the deep, the deep, the tehom. It's etymologically related to the god Tiamat of Babylonian legend, <clears throat> and the deep is the the unrestrained, violent salt water, the ocean which always pictures death and judgment in the scriptures. It's unrestrained. It's a picture of chaos. So you have this earth, it's formless and void, darkness over the surface of the deep. And if it's dark and there's no light, then it's probably frozen solid, almost absolute zero. So you have this ice pack there that is shrinking the physical mass of the earth if physical laws today apply then. But they probably didn't, so who knows what it was like. What I'm saying is that anything that had lived before that, if there had been, just on the assumption that the gap theory was right, if anything had lived before that, capsulated in this ice, and then the Spirit of God begins to move on the water to regenerate everything, whatever evidence there was of anything before this would have been totally eliminated, wiped out, just as any evidence from today's earth and universe is not going to be present in the new heavens. And New Earth. So you can't go back here for theological reasons, for exegetical reasons. Uh, Job talks about Behemoth and Leviathan. Leviathan has a tail like the trunk of a tree. Now think about all the creatures you've seen. What creature has a tail like the trunk of a tree? Certain dinosaurs do. Elephants don't. Rhinoceroses don't. Rhinoceri don't. Um, Dinosaurs, uh, not brontosaurus, I think it's got a different name now. When I came, was growing up, they were called brontosaurus. Now they're something different. I can't keep up with it. So what you have here is that all life, every category of species is created in those first six days. Dinosaurs couldn't survive the, fall, the flood because the post-flood environment was radically different from the pre-flood environment. Now, some survived for a while, and there are legends which nobody tries to track down because they don't fit modern scientific theory. There are legends that certain tribes back in the bush in the Amazon or in Africa have within tribal memory the existence of these kinds of creatures. Every now and then, I think in the early 70s, some uh, previously thought to have been extinct dinosaur creature was discovered in some deep hole, Um, off of uh, out in the ocean, the Pacific. What what is that? What's that trench, Uh, the Marianas Trench uh, out there? And you always have things like this. When I was in high school, I would go up during the summers after my, uh, I think it was after my senior year, between my junior and senior year, and we worked around on the Pilexi River, which is a small river nobody ever heard of, about 40, 50 miles southwest of Fort Worth, just outside the Dinosaur State Park. And what we were doing was we were following, we would dig out the, the, um, the riverbed, we would sandbag the river, pump the water out, and we would follow the dinosaur tracks. We would also follow what we thought were human footprints and human tracks, obvi- a very clear left-right, left-right pattern, huge feet this big with a, about a six to seven foot stride. Of course, remember Genesis 6 says that there were giants in the earth in those days. Now, according to the model of flood geology, it is the flood that lays down sedimentary rock. Water is necessary to lay down sedimentary rock, basic principle of geology. Fossils are found in sedimentary rock. So, the entire fossil record from A to Z... Because there are various places on the planet where it's all mixed up and it doesn't follow a pattern, other places it follows this pattern, other places it follows that pattern. You have to treat the entire fossil record as one record. You can't come in and say, Well, A through M was laid down in in a in the cataclysm between Genesis one one and one two and then N through Z is from the flood. You have to take it as an entire piece. Of evidence, And if um, if it happened between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, then when you come to Noah's flood in Genesis 6, which didn't last 40 days and 40 nights, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. But if you carefully follow the chronology in Genesis 6, you will discover that it was 360 days from the day they got on the ark the day they got off the ark and after the water after it quit raining after 40 days and 40 nights the waters continued to rise for I think another 120 or 150 days and then you had about 100 days where everything just sloshed around can you imagine the turmoil that is going on the centrifugal force if you've ever been any place where a river has flooded and seen the damage it causes go down to the delta in Mississippi I've seen just small rivers in Texas flood and the the incredible damage there and how it just reshapes the landscape. It doesn't even look the same. So, what I'm saying is if the entire fossil record is laid down in a gap between Genesis 1.1 and 1.2, then you have this incredible deluge in Genesis 6 that has left no record whatsoever on the face of the earth. Frankly, I find that position to be absurd. I know people who will try to hold that position because they want to hold on to a gap view. They just can't imagine how dinosaurs and human beings could live on the earth at the same time. But I find that you've got to start with scripture and not start with autonomous concepts of what I think could or could not have been going on on the earth at any particular time. I have to start with what the Scripture says and work out from there. So I, I'm pretty easy going. You have one view, which I was explaining earlier, the, the Waltke-Ross view. Many other people hold that view. Then you have a second view, which is the view I hold, that 1-1 one, one, uh, describes the original creation of the universe. Then there is an undetermined period of time when you have the creation of the angels and the fall of Lucifer and Satan, the angelic revolt, revolt, and all of that. And then in 1-2, you have the response of God to uh, Lucifer. Well, how can you do this? How can a just God do this? Why can't you let me as an independent creature rule my own domain? And God says, okay, we're going to have a test case. It's going to be human history, and I'll show you and demonstrate why creatures can't live apart from the Creator. Then the third view is what's called, for lack of a better term, term, the young age view. And this view sees everything from 1-1 down to 2-4 as taking place in six literal days of work plus one day of rest. Now, this view here, I still view the six days as literal 24-hour days. You can't escape that from the Hebrew... Anytime you have the word yom in Hebrew modified by a number, anywhere in the Old Testament it always refers to a literal 24-hour day. There's a lot of other reasons. It says morning and evening, and it was day one. It's just obvious. Yeah, it's got to be six literal 24-hour days. So we don't argue there. We just argue, uh, have an issue here on 1-1 to 1-2. And the young age view, problem I have is they try to put the fall. They're forced almost, although I know there's a few who differ, very few. Some will try to put the fall of Satan prior to 1-1, but most put the fall after two fall, The fall of Satan after 2-4. Creation of angels is on the fourth day, typically, and the fall of Satan is after... And they argue from the word tov, the Hebrew word tov, which is translated good when God says at the end of each day, and it was good, it was morning, and evening, God looked at everything he did that day and said it was good. And then... Uh, At the end of the seven days he looks at everything and says it's very good. And what they do is they try to import into the word tov a moral connotation. And they try to argue that because God said it's very good, there couldn't have been any sin, there couldn't have been any fall, Satan couldn't have fallen yet, so therefore Satan. Trouble is that you can go to a number of places in the Scripture where Tov is used to describe inanimate objects. And an inanimate object cannot be moral, immoral, good, bad, or indifferent. It can be, though, exactly what its designer intended it to be, and that means it is Tov. So at the end of each day, God had a blueprint. He said on day one, I'm going to do this and this. I'm going to separate the light from the darkness. I'm going to call the day, the, the light day and the night darkness. And at the end, God says... It is good. It's exactly what I intended it to be. So, now that took a lot longer to answer that question than I intended. But that's one of my favorite subjects and little hobby horse. So, you've got three views. And I think all of these are, are fairly good. I just have a problem with anybody who's trying to put any kind of living life form, any death before Genesis 1-2, you run into some major Theological problems, and you don't have to. I mean, there are many scientists who are working, uh, with Institute for Creation Research and other scientific groups that are, that clearly believe in a literal genesis, who are coming up with, uh, just brilliant, uh, options. And, and they're evaluating, not that they have all the answers, not that they've worked through all the problems. These guys don't get grants from the federal government. They have to do what they do in their garages or in their basements on Saturday mornings and Saturday afternoons at their own expense. And so it takes them years and years and years to work things out and to come up with with solutions and, and uh, try to solve some of the problems like the radiocarbon dating problem and some other things. So now we're at James chapter 4. James chapter 4, the end of verse 2. Now that was just an answer to one question. I didn't want anybody getting too upset over that, because I know the, the the history of that, in fact, we, I wrote, I did the manuscript and wrote the wrote the book for Creation, Chaos, and Restoration for Colonel Theme when I was at or working at TNP, and when we rewrote Creation, Chaos, and Restoration, we intentionally, it was an editorial decision okayed by him, took all mention of the dinosaurs and all that out of the book because at that point he wasn't sure where they could go, and I remember even in early. 92 or 93, he was doing a civilization series. He put dinosaurs after the fall. Now a lot of people miss that because he only did it a couple of Bible classes. He didn't repeat it over and over again. But um, we have to continually come back and re-examine the evidence. So if you look at the new creation, chaos, and restoration book that we've had out there, it does not even mention when the di- that's not even addressed. And the reason is because we felt like there just wasn't. They did have some serious problems uh, putting it before Genesis 1-2, and so that was, that was removed. James 4-2, You lust and do not have, so you commit murder, and you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Now, I think we have to take the last part of verse 2 and the first part of verse 3 together. It's unfortunate they've broken it apart with a verse reference. Because they deal with different aspects of the same problem Why their prayers aren't being answered Number one, they're not praying because they're in carnality They're operating on sin nature They're in rebellion against God And so they don't ask at all And then when they do ask They're just asking from their own sin They're still in carnality And they're just asking God to satisfy the lust pattern of their soul So that brings us to seven reasons why Christians don't pray Seven reasons Christians don't pray Point number one, they are in reversionism, they're in carnality, they're in rebellion against God, and so they don't want to come to God in dependence upon Him to ask Him for anything. And that's exactly the case we have here in James 1. What happens with a lot of people, you see they get into various forms of testing, they keep trying to solve their problems on their own, their incarnality stress begins to invade the soul, They begin to fragment. They get further and further away from God as they reverse their course. Instead of moving forward in spiritual maturity and spiritual growth, they reverse direction, which we call reversionism because it is a reverse course of action and they are backing up in their spiritual life instead of going forward and they're in rebellion against God so they just don't ask Him. Point number two. The second reason Christians don't pray is they lack confidence in being heard because they, they have a sense of guilt and sin and they don't understand the doctrines related to confession and cleansing. They don't realize that at the instant you admit your sins to God, you are cleansed because Jesus Christ paid for sins for every sin in the human race, past, present, and future on the cross, And so, at the instant you admit your sin to God, it's wiped clean and God forgets it. He doesn't hold it against you and it's not an issue anymore. But people want to feel guilty and they're overwhelmed. They've shocked themselves. They've shocked their neighbors. They've made their husband mad, their wife mad, their friends mad. They've upset everybody and now they're under a load of guilt over whatever's happened. And they do not understand that God has... Wipe the slate clean so they can have free access to the throne of grace again. Point number three, people are generally ignorant of the biblical doctrine related to prayer. They think it's somehow like going to Santa Claus and making a wish list or rubbing the magic bottle to get the genie to pop out so God will give you whatever you want. They are ignorant of biblical doctrine related to prayer and how to pray. Point number four. Christians are spiritually ignorant of the mandate to pray, so they become too busy, too wrapped up in their own lives, too caught up with temporal things to focus on God. We are commanded to pray without ceasing. We are commanded in Colossians to devote ourselves to prayer. This means that these are terms related to the highest possible priority, with the only exception being the study of God's Word. So we are to be involved in daily, regular, consistent, Conversation with God. Point number five. Some Christians doubt that God is really there or that prayer changes things. They just lack faith. This is what James refers to in James chapter 1 when he says, But let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. Some doubt God and don't think that prayer can change anything. Point number six, sometimes Christians have gone through periods of disappointment and frustration, especially in relation to trials and testing, and they think that God did not answer their prayer, so they become bitter to God. They react to God. They think that God should have handled the situation one way. Something different happens, and now they're mad at God. But bitterness is just a result of self-absorption and arrogance, and further deteriorates and destroys their spiritual life. And then seven, many Christians get caught up in forms of uh, hyper-Calvinism and distortions of the doctrine of the sovereignty of God that end up in fatalism, and they just don't think that prayer will do any good, that prayer will change anything. And yet, what James says right here is, you have not, you do not have, because you do not ask. And the implication is that there is contingency in the plan of God. Contingency does not mean that God learns something new or that God is surprised. But in His plan, God decreed that His sovereignty and the volition of man would coexist in human history. And within His plan, He includes certain contingent factors. So that if we ask, God will answer. If we don't ask, He won't. It doesn't affect the overall movement of God's plan, but it does affect the degree to which we experience God's blessing in this life. So, we just got through dealing with creation, so let's use that as an illustration of contingency. When God created the entire animal kingdom and all the DNA, chromosomes and everything else that's associated with with the animals. He included within that those laws of physics and biology that he instituted that first in those six days, he included the flexibility necessary to handle the contingency of the fall resulting from sin. So that those animals were created with a certain genetic makeup and God created lions and those lions were herbivores and that meant they had a certain dental structure and they had a certain digestive structure that was totally different from what it is today. But when God created that in his omniscience, he included all the various possibilities So that if Adam had not sinned it would have gone one way and they would have stayed herbivores but because of the impact of sin and its curse it went another way. So God's plan is broad enough to handle flexibility and contingency as illustrated in the animal kingdom in the fall. So the same is true for your prayer life and my prayer life and we will look at some examples next time of just how God's how prayer has changed things in history. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the time we've had to look at your word, for the encouragement that your word is absolute truth, and that you have had a plan throughout all of history, and you have uh, worked according to that plan, and the center point of that plan is our salvation that was taken care of by the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Father, we pray that you would, Help us to remember the things we've studied tonight and challenge us by them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.